You are listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 3, The East Area Rapist. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. October 9th, 1976, 4.30 a.m. Don't scream or I'll kill you, a man whispered into the ear of a young girl while he had his hand covering her mouth. She had been abruptly awakened by a hand surrounding her mouth and a sharp object being jammed into her back. She was complicit and had her hands bound behind her back using shoelaces, a gag in her mouth, and subsequently blindfolded. She says he was taking quick, rapid breaths. As soon as he had her subdued, he proceeded to pull her out of bed and escorted her towards the patio. As they headed out the door, he whispered loudly into her ear that he had been dreaming about her and wanted to fuck her. As they made it to the patio, he forced her onto a carpet laid out on the patio where he bound her feet together. As she laid there on the ground terrified, he went back into the house. She could hear that he had returned a few moments later and was walking around the backyard. He made a few trips in and out of the house. At one point, he approached her and asked her where the money was, saying he needed a fix. Still taking in a forced whisper, he said, You better have my money. He then returned into the house. A few minutes later, he returned. This time, he was lying right next to her. He laid down next to her, masturbating. He was breathing in short, rapid breaths still. He then poked her with a sharp object and said, You better let me do this. And then he straddled her back and placed his penis into her bound hands. He then untied her feet and raped her. He began a cycle of going in and out of the home, coming back and raping her several times. She could hear him moving about in what would sound like the rustling of bags. He came out of the home, moved the carpet along with her near a post on the patio. He tied her to the patio. He then grabbed her hands and began removing the rings on her fingers. Finally, she heard him tell her that he was leaving. He warned her that he lived down the street and he would know if she screamed. After she felt he was gone, she freed herself of her blindfolding gag, but could not free her bound hands behind her back. She went to the phone in the kitchen and noticed the phone line had been cut. She also noticed the phone line in the bedroom had been cut. It was in this moment the victim felt completely defeated. She fell to the floor and laid there, waiting for someone to arrive to help her. A couple hours later, a friend arrived and saw her, still partially bound. The friend freed the victim and they went to the friend's house to call police. While waiting on police, the victim, feeling violated, showered off to clean herself up. There's the possibility that some evidence may now be lost. The police arrived to the single-story home, a little after 9 a.m., and quickly located the point of entry, a dining room window. They found the screen discarded in the bushes, torn strips of towel, and evidence of ransacking. The victims described him as white, 5'10", wearing a ski mask, and not much else. He made out with a small metal box and some cash and jewelry. One very interesting thing investigators noticed was that the assailant had taken the clothesline from the victim's yard and brought it into the house and tied all the doorknobs together down the hallway in such a manner that if anyone inside was in those rooms, they would not be able to pull to open the door. The crisscross pattern of the clothesline would also stop anyone from running down the hallway. This is a possible clue that the attacker wasn't aware of the presence of anyone else in the home, meaning it wasn't planned as usual. Interestingly, in this incident, a suspect was developed right away. A next-door neighbor to this victim. The man actually approached the reporting officer and introduced himself. He told the officer that his home had already been burglarized, but there was no sign of a forced entry, and nothing was taken. He returned again later and announced that he had found six rings in his home that did not belong there. The man was about the right age and height as the description of the perpetrator. It was discovered a bit later that the suspect's bedroom overlooked the female victim's bedroom. The offender also drove a small green Chevy Vega, which had been a vehicle described by witnesses in prior attacks prowling the neighborhoods. Let's break down this attack. So at this one, what's really interesting here is that you have the um, you have the, the prowler using the, the cross streets to escape instead of the canal way that he'd been using, or sometimes he was targeting homes with like a large field behind it. So he kind of left the scene basically through an area in which he could have easily been noticed, but 
you know, as we know so far, like he does all this stuff anyway, and no one seems to really report it or notice it too much. So I thought that was a little bit interesting. Um, the other thing that was really interesting here was the clothesline. What'd you make of that? Sounded like a very elaborate trap, in my opinion, to, to either make sure that if somebody was there that they would trip and fall, make a lot of noise, and he could escape. Or, you know, like it was described, the way he tied the doorknobs together, that they couldn't open the door if they even, even if they were there. So, you know, if you're rustling the door, you're going to make a bunch of noise if it doesn't open for you. So... Yeah, I um as a kid, I did this prank on my family on April Fool's Day one day. I tied all their doorknobs together and no one could get out of the room. You know, I thought I was hilarious, but uh we used to do that stuff all the time and um you know, that was it was pretty ingenious if you think about it, but at the same time like I I was kind of wondering, you know, as he took the time to go through and tie up all of these doorknobs together, like wouldn't that be kind of loud? And wouldn't you hear somebody like kind of messing with you like doorknobs are pretty loud i mean when you start jingling on a doorknob even before you open it, i mean it's very loud i get up at a very early hour in the morning and to get out of my room i'm intentionally trying to be quiet and i know that there's mornings where my wife hears me messing with the door just to get it open you know Mm -hmm. so if someone was in the home i would be concerned i would wake them i guess yeah in this case maybe he locked out maybe there wasn't anybody there he just did it as a precaution because it, the interesting thing to me was it sounded like he got a little bit more lazy on this one and was setting up this trap or, you know, this this way to detect if anybody was there because he hadn't done as much homework as he had performed in the first five attacks. Yeah, um, there might be some of that. I don't uh, believe anybody was actually home for this one. I think it was just the girl by herself. I think her dad was gone. And uh, as evidenced by her waiting for her friend to come find her. So it wasn't as planned and thought out as some of the other attacks, at least in that regard. Like, I don't know, maybe he figured nobody was home, but just to be sure in case there was somebody else in a room that he couldn't peek in on before he entered the home, perhaps he felt like he needed to just make doubly sure that nobody was home for whatever the reason, rather than this being a crime of opportunity. It seems like he was somewhat prepared for this one. He just maybe wanted to be extra certain. I mean, I can't imagine how many homes this guy is prowling on, you know, like how many people is he watching and trying to understand their patterns before he picks the home that he's actually going to go after, you know, and then from there he has to remember like this is the home. And I mean, obviously this dude's really busy, like prowling these homes. I feel like I would get them mixed up, get their patterns mixed up at some point. Right. And and how about the next door neighbor? How would you like to be that guy that's driving a car that matches his description of his car? His bedroom overlooks this victim's, and he somehow mysteriously has six rings that don't belong to him in his house. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of those things that you'll, I mean, even from the Visalia Ransacker series, he would take things from one home and leave them in another home. And so that would happen. I don't know if he forgot them there or it was intentionally just moving things around to make make it look a certain way because he was very good at staging things. So I wouldn't put it past him to have staged a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he knew what police were looking for, meaning his car, that green Chevy Vega, and then planted evidence in a home next to a, you know, a house that has the green Chevy Vega right next door and make it look like it was that dude. That would be very interesting if he if he had enough intel to know that police were looking for that car. So then he went over and found a home where the guy drove that car and was similar in description to him enough that he could plant evidence over there and maybe get the police off of his tail for a little while. Right. I, I'd say that's the case. I, I'd say he scoped out this, this spot, this victim, and, you know, it just happened to be that the guy next door has a car very similar to his and, you know, it very easily could have, you know, portrayed him as being the perpetrator when he actually wasn't. This green Chevy Vega, I I don't recall what a Chevy Vega looks like. I need to look it up because I I have a feeling it's like the old cop cars from the 70s you see with the little silver center hubcaps, just that dull looking paint. I have a feeling that's what it looks like or like the car that you saw in the uh, Beastie Boys video for Sabotage. (laughs) It's in the slow motion (laughs) jump over over the streets. Well, I believe I did look this up not that long ago because I was curious myself. 
And it is, um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of what you'd think it would look like. I mean, I'll show you here on my screen. So I looked this up and, you know, the Chevy Vega, it's a two-door coupe. Um, I don't know. Some of them might have four doors. It looks like they might. Wikipedia has a page about them. There, it looks like there's a four-door variant. I oh, know that's a coupe. Yeah, it's it's what you would think of as like a, a 70s, 60s, late 60s uh, to mid-70s muscle car is kind of what it looks like. It's got like rounded uh, front headlights and a big grill on the front and big thick tires. And it's exactly what I would imagine it to be. So... I was going to say it doesn't look exactly like what I thought it was. I was I was hoping it was like the 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 dull green or the dull blue like undercover police car, but it doesn't sound doesn't appear to be. Well, I don't know if the color I just did a quick Google image search, so I don't know what the color is if if they have a color that's uh you know like that or not. Um most of the ones I saw were like red or yellow. We'll move on to attack number 7, October 18th, 1976, Kipling Drive in the city of Carmichael. It was around 2.30 a.m. when the family dog began furiously barking. It awoke the 10-year-old boy in the home, and he decided it was a good idea to let the dog out. As the boy started to open the door to let the dog out, he noticed a man wearing a mask, a blue t-shirt, white underwear, and tennis shoes, prying the sliding glass door to the patio. The boy very astutely let the dog out another door. The half-dressed man took off running to the fence, hopping on top of it. He sat on the fence like a gargoyle watching the barking dog. Once he decided the dog was no threat, he hopped down, and he sprinted over to the kitchen window, where he had already removed the screen. He easily climbed right through the window. The boy ran straight to his mother's room as soon as he saw the man coming through the window so that he could warn her. His mother grabbed the phone and dialed the operator, then a neighbor. No answer from either. She started to dial the sheriff's department, but the intruder was entering her bedroom. He grabbed the phone from her hand and whispered, Don't scream. Do what you're told, or both you and your son will die. He continued, how many people are in the house? He clearly didn't know this house as well as some of the others. There was a little girl, the daughter, sleeping in her bedroom. The intruder moved to close the door to her room. The dog was feverishly barking in the yard. The intruder instructed the mother to go shut him up, or he would butcher them all. She did as instructed and locked the dog in another room, and he quieted down. Before leaving the room, the suspect cut the telephone cord. The intruder returned to the bedroom with a towel. He began tearing it into strips. He pulled the mother towards him and spun her around and bound her hands. After binding the woman, he bound the child's hands to the headboard of the bed and then bound his feet together tightly. If you move, I will kill you, he threatened. He then threw a blanket over the boy's head. This time, the man speaking with a slight stutter said, Don't move. If you do, I will take s s seconds off his life. If you do what I s s say, you won't get hurt. I'll be gone in a little while. If you don't do what I s s say, I will c kill you all. He then forced the mother to the living room. Sit down, he instructed. Where's your money? The familiar ruse he used many times before, happening once again. She responded that she had some money in an envelope meant for the Heart Association, but that was all. The man seemed disinterested in the money. He was ripping towels, and then he knelt down and bound her ankles. He then left the room. The intruder began his usual ransacking ritual opening and closing drawers, doors, and cabinets, not taking anything of any real value. He returned to the woman, leaning over her. He whispered, You're beautiful. She pled with him not to hurt her, stating she was pregnant. He did not respond. Next, he blindfolded and gagged her. He proceeded to untie her ankles and lifted her up until she was standing. He brought her back to the bedroom, where her son was still bound to the bed, and rummaged around a bit before returning, to the back, returning her back to the living room. On the floor he demanded. She fell to the floor lying on her back. He unbuttoned her shirt and pulled her underwear off. You have a beautiful body. Do you lay out in the sun? She shook her head. He then proceeded to give oral sex to her. After a few minutes, he stopped, bound her ankles, and moved to the kitchen and began ransacking. The woman lying there now felt a knife touching her cheek. You lied, the man growled. You said there was no money. I'm going to kill you for lying. There was money in the desk. She shook her head. He then slid the knife down her body as if he were performing an autopsy and cutting the body open. However, he was only pretending. He then said to her, if you don't do what I say, I will kill you and your kids. He then rolled her onto her stomach and placed his lubricated penis into her numb, bound hands. He then untied her and removed the gag from her mouth. He began trying to tug her rings from her fingers, but he could not get them off. 
Through the gag, she tried to tell him to use soap to remove the rings, but he kept aggressively tugging. He then tried soap and still had no luck. Then he untied her and had her remove her rings herself. Take the rings off or I will kill you, he threatened. She was then promptly back, bound again. Your body is beautiful, he said to her. He then positioned her upright and seated. She felt his penis against her mouth. Suck on it, he demanded. He did this for a moment and then ended by raping her. As he was in the act, the woman said, You're such a good lover. Trying to play nice to help her cause. Stopping, he replied. No one ever said that before. They just laugh at me. Do you like to be complimented, she replied. Yes. People make fun of me, especially since something happened to my face. Suddenly, he said, I need to know what time it is. Where is your clock? She responded by telling him her clock is in the kitchen, to which he immediately went to the kitchen and began ransacking again. He came back into the living room and sodomized her. She began crying as it was very painful, to which he forced her back onto her knees and sodomized her again. The intruder then tied her knees to a coffee table and headed down the hallway. She could hear him threatening one of her kids that he would kill her if they moved. He was back again a few moments later and asked the woman, When will your husband be home? She replied, Friday. He sodomized her again, this time for just a few seconds, and then left and returned again. He licked all over her when he returned and then proceeded to rape her again. She stated that she was cold, so he put a blanket on her, what would appear to be a comforting gesture, until he orally sodomized her and then raped her again. At this point, she, she may have passed out, and all she remembers is that when she realized what was going on, the house was now quiet. She was able to work her bindings off and then call the police. Detectives Richard Shelby and Carol Daly, pivotal investigators in this case, were now on the scene. They questioned the victims, and the description was as follows. 5'7", medium, solid build, with no body fat or belly. The suspect wore a mask with a round top, dark blue t-shirt, white jockey shorts, and black tennis shoes. His gloves were confusingly described as dark or black and white. He spoke through clenched teeth in a whisper, but this time there was a stutter. When Detective Shelby first responded to the scene, he radioed out that the suspect was carrying an ice pick. However, he later determined the weapon to be more likely a knife or a pocket knife. Investigators employed a bloodhound, and the dog immediately picked up on the intruder's scent. Behind the victim's house lay a huge open field, which is where the victim says she heard a car engine start after the attack. The dog found this to be the case as well, and investigators noticed muddy tracks everywhere. Investigators had two suspects they had been eyeing, but couldn't quite pinpoint. On the evening of this attack, Investigators were staking out one of their homes, and the person remained home during the entirety of the attack. The second suspect, the one who interjected himself in an earlier attack, was brought to the scene. The bloodhound walked right past him, not detecting a scent. He was then eliminated through the use of the bloodhound. Several neighbors now reported that they had witnessed prowler activity as well as hearing the dog barking around 2.30 a.m. A next-door neighbor heard the victim screaming, and then she heard the dog barking. She even got up and looked outside for roughly five minutes, but didn't see anything unusual outside and just went back to bed. Investigators spoke with a local newspaper delivery boy. His mother had been driving him along his route around 6.30 a.m., to which they reported they saw a Lincoln Continental parked at the end of Jacob Lane, a dead-end street near the victim's home. The car was there on the morning of the attack, but it was later identified as a known drug dealer's car. Detective Shelby at this point had, had to begin pitching the idea of a serial rapist to his department. At this time in the series, not all events were exactly connected and not as much information was shared between departments. At this point, the evidence was hard to ignore and Executive Officer Lieutenant Ray Root agreed and proceeded to start gearing up for more attacks. Something interesting happened a little bit later. The victim had been cleaning her house when she found a bent spoon under the couch where she was assaulted. There were no marks on it or signs of drug use. However, the spoon was turned over to Carol Daly and eventually passed on to Shelby. They attempted to trace a spoon over the next several months, but it was just a common dinnerware spoon. Breaking down this assault, it's, you know, we're really, we have a big pattern here of how he does things. And, you know, it seems like, I don't know if it's just researching the details. They are very hard to find. The details of this case are, are very difficult to find, like actually of the actual attack itself and what happens while he's in the home. Like actually, you know, the story, the narrative, uh, the number of attacks, the vague general information around the attacks is pretty easy to track down. But when you try and start finding out like what happened while he was in that home during that attack, it's pretty hard. And sometimes there's conflicting evidence um, or conflicting reports, I should say. But one thing I wanted to point out here was, you know, he threatens to kill people 
in every attack. And he just keeps threatening. And also at each attack, which we don't really mention a whole lot, he always leaves some kind of mark on his victims. Like, And they always report it as, oh, I think it was like a- he accidentally poked me with a knife or something. But I seem to think that he's really just holding back. Like he doesn't want to kill somebody per se, but it feels like he's just like building towards it. Like he's just building himself up like in his head, like he needs to get to that next level. And so he, he starts, you know, escalating, but he stops himself, you know, but he tells people all the time, I'm going to kill you or I'll kill you if you talk or I'll kill you. If you, you know, you make a noise, I'll kill you if you try and move. And he's constantly telling people he's going to kill them. Yeah, he's even to the point where he's threatening the kids now, too, telling them that if they move or make a noise, he'll kill them as well. So Yeah, I mean, and he clearly has no problem, you know, when he is talking, to, or when he's uh, attacking, he attacks younger girls all the time. I mean, they're routinely under under 18. A lot of them are like 15, you know? Right. What did you, What did you make of him, the victim in this attack, throwing some compliments his way? as to him being a good lover and all that. I thought it was smart. I thought, you know, that self-preservation aspect, she tried something. And remember, at this time, people don't really know what's going on. The police have kept this very quiet. There's a media blackout. They're not allowed to report on it. They don't want people knowing what's going on because they're hoping to catch the guy before it becomes, you know, this huge issue in the public eye. And they feel like sometimes with these kind of people, if you give them the media attention that they crave, they just escalate faster. So sometimes it's better to keep quiet. And, you know, it's one of those, it's it's a different school of thought. Like, is it better to keep quiet? What would you have done if you were law enforcement? Would you keep this quiet up to this point? Or would you be trying to let people know right away? In this day and age, I don't think you could keep it quiet. I mean, the first attack would have been broadcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know. Not to downplay, you know, the victim wanting attention or anything like that, but when things like that happen, everybody seems to know about it. I mean, it, the word spreads much, much faster today. It Even sure though does. law enforcement may not want it to, it's going to. Yeah, but you got to remember, rape is one of those things where it's very personal and very embarrassing for the victim. They almost feel ashamed, you know, and we're starting to get to a point in our culture where it's okay to admit when these things have happened to you. and you know, people do want other people to share so that, you know, they can get it off their chest. So they're not holding that in. But at the same time, there are definitely people who find this to be like, a, it's a super embarrassing, extra intimate crime. And it's a violation of that person. So while, yeah, if, if somebody chooses to share it, it's going to, it's going to be out there and it's going to spread. But, you know, at this time, they don't realize that this is a series of attacks and we're up to attack number seven. You know, I'm kind of of the opinion that you do keep this quiet for a little while. I know it always seems to piss the public off when they find out the police have been keeping things quiet, but, you know, the police have been doing their jobs for a long time. And when you have a consensus among a group of officers or a whole department that we should keep this quiet for now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you have people who will witch hunt for the rapist, right? And those kinds of things. But what we notice time and time again throughout this series is that people are home. They witness prowlers. They hear dogs barking. They hear women screaming. They don't call the cops for anything. But if you knew about it, if you knew that this was going on, Maybe somebody calls the cops at just the right time and he gets caught. Yeah, I I can see the dog barking and some of that commotion not warning a call to police. But when there's people screaming, I can't believe that the number of times that this has happened now that people haven't called the police, (laughs) I guess. Well, yeah. And when you figure in like in this particular attack, like the dog was barking like crazy just from hearing the man try and get in the house at the beginning. They let the dog out. It goes outside and is outside barking like crazy even after the guy enters the home. And then you hear a woman scream and you don't do nothing. I mean, you just look outside. I mean, that's pretty That's pretty crazy. I mean, it's hard to say because I don't know. I can see myself in this situation, right? You hear some dog outside barking like crazy and then you hear somebody scream, but then it gets quiet. 
in the back of my mind though i'm I'm thinking to myself something bad just happens why she got quiet you know what i mean like that's why all of a sudden she stopped screaming and you know the difference between like being loud and screaming in fear you know right. like you know there there's a difference there so i'm kind of shocked that the cops did not get a phone call in this case yeah th- this one for sure i'm kind of surprised that there wasn't a call to the cops yeah, and you know, we've yeah. talked about this before. Like, I've talked about if I heard people outside, like, yelling at each other, I don't think I'd call the cops. But if I heard a dog, like, feverishly barking like that, and then suddenly this woman is screaming, like, bloody murder screaming, uh, which I'm assuming that's what she was doing, I guess. I'm not for sure how, what kind of scream she had, but I'm assuming it was probably a very scared-sounding scream. If I heard that, I'm calling the police because I don't know who's outside, I don't know what's going on, and I don't want them in my home. So I'm probably, that's, that's at the point where I'm probably making the phone call to police because you have multiple items there that are just, you know, it's too much to ignore, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Unlike when, you know, I know we talked during the Trayvon Martin case, like if I heard my neighbors outside screaming at each other, well, I'm not going to call the cops on that. It's two people having a disagreement. You know, if it carried on for quite some time, then yeah, I probably would. But if, you know, if it was like a 20 or 30 second altercation where people are screaming at each other, I'm not calling the cops over that. But if I heard in the middle of the night, you know, it's 2.30 in the morning. People are screaming, you know, and dogs are barking like something's going on. It's 2.30 in the morning. Someone's in someone's house. Like something bad's going down. We should get the cops on that. Like that's my thought. I don't know if it's just like a naivety of people at the time or what, but. I mean, we go back and look at the ransacker case that we covered during part one. There was a heightened sense of awareness of things going on in the neighborhood because, you know, there were several instances where. We refer to people buying guns and buying dogs just for that reason, because there were so many houses being ransacked before we got to this part of the part of the case where these rapes and attacks are happening. So yeah. I would think that I would think that people in those neighborhoods would be a little bit more trigger happy to call the cops when they heard this kind of stuff, because you made a perfect example of it's one thing to hear somebody yell. It's another thing to hear somebody scream in terror. Yeah. So. Well, and the other thing is, you know, the Visalia series occurred in Visalia. Like, this is a different town. You know, it's it's not in the exact same area that it was happening before. I mean, it's close, but it's not right there. And so, and, and the MO is a little bit different now. It's not the ransacking that's going on. It's a prowler rapist going on, you know. So, that while the behaviors are similar, and once he gets in the home, he starts doing some of the ransacking stuff. He was, like, mass ransacking homes, right? I mean, they did, like, 100 homes and... I mean, it wasn't very a very short span of time. I mean, he, he was out there all the time just, like, burglarizing these homes and ransacking them. So it's pretty crazy, you know, at the, the speed at which he was doing that. And then, you know, now you're kind of on these more methodical, you know, a little bit more spaced out, you know, attacks. You know, he really hunts his victims and prowls the neighborhoods, figures out his escape plan, you know. Because in the other series, it was like, I just need to know when people aren't home. In this series, it's, I need someone to be home because I'm going to rape them. And I also need to know how many other people are home and watch out for that. Attack number eight, October 18th, 1976. About 20 hours after attack number seven, a masked man approached a 19-year-old woman getting out of her car. Don't move or I'll kill you. He reached in through her open car door window and wrapped his hand around her mouth and grabbed her head as he tried pulling her from the car. She began to fight back until he held a knife up to her throat and whispered through his trademark clenched teeth that all he wanted was her car and for her to stop fighting. If she didn't comply, he said he would cut her up. Finally, she began to comply with his orders, and he dragged and pushed her to the backyard near a fence where it was dark and shadowy. He forced her to the ground and bound her hands and feet with a cord, which was from the clothesline in the backyard. Along the way to the backyard, the victim heard the man just repeating all he wanted was her car and her money. He didn't find anything in her purse and he forced her out of her yard and into the neighboring lawn. She noticed rags uniformly laid out, prepared. Next, the prowler bound and gagged her, using the rags in the yard. A few moments later, he went back to her purse and retrieved her car keys. He whispered to her, If you move, blam, blam, blam. She never saw or believed that he had a gun. He also told her that if she moved, he would slit her throat and cut her guts out. The next thing she heard was the sound of her car start up, and back out of her driveway. Interestingly, in this case, the neighbor would usually be home, but happened to be gone that night. Was this an attack based off of opportunity? The next interesting thing is that the girl is usually only home for about 30 minutes regularly, from 11 to 11.30 p.m. The suspect was gone just moments before the rest of her family had arrived home. She still lived with her parents and brother, 
it would appear he knew their schedule. The woman's car was located a few blocks away with her dog locked in the trunk. He was described as six foot tall, 170 pounds, a three-quarter length heavy gray jacket with buttons and brown wool gloves. He wore a brownish gray sock with holes cut out for eyes. After this attack, the media ban was essentially lifted. So, you know, you would start seeing news reports and things start to come out. And one of the interesting things here is that Detective Richard Shelby started suspecting that the way that he was figuring out who was in the home or or something like that was, I think we even talked about this before, is that you could tap into phone lines using just like an FM radio and you could overhear what was going on. So he kind of suspected that maybe while he was prowling, he was using a radio and listening in on the homes to figure out how many people lived in the home, who would be in and out of the home, those kinds of things. And, you know, it was uh, it was kind of interesting in that regard. One of the other items that is of note here is early on in the series, there was kind of a rotation of investigators coming in and out of, you know, who was going to the scene of the crime. So it wasn't always Detective Shelby and it wasn't always Carol Daly. They weren't always at the scene. On this particular attack, they weren't present and they weren't always made aware of these attacks either right away. And so, uh, you know, critical questions about his MO were not asked. For instance, they didn't ask the victim if she had been receiving any hang-up phone calls in the weeks leading up to her getting attacked, which was a trademark of the East Area Rapist. And also to note, you know, neighbors still are not reporting anything. Um, There's a lot of prowler activity. You know, once the police arrive and start investigating and asking questions, all of a sudden you'll get this huge swath of information from neighbors. Oh, yeah, my garage was broken into, some tools were taken, um, you know, someone was opening my fence. I, I came outside and the gate to my fence had been open and three more gates down the street were open. And, you know, all this strange stuff was going on, but no one says anything about it until after someone gets hurt. Yeah, that that totally doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. I mean, even if your home was broken into and only a few invaluable items were taken, you still think you would want to report it because somebody broke into your home, right? <laughs> Or, no or whatever. Yeah, no kidding. I, I would report it in two seconds if someone was in my home. If I saw my fence was open, like, my fence is never open. <laughs> if someone opened my fence, I'd be freaking out. I mean, even even if the the assumption was, oh, it's this miscreant kid's doing what they do, you still call the cops. I don't, you don't give them a pass just because, oh, it's just some neighborhood kids doing what they do, you know, no big deal. But if they're stealing shit out of your house and breaking in... It, I, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Oh, hell yeah, man. I don't want those little turds getting away with it. I had some little turd break into my car and, uh, when I lived with my parents. And we lived in this neighborhood. It was very quiet, uh, middle-class neighborhood. Nobody did anything. I mean, th- I, it was it was nothing. And uh, we didn't even lock our doors. We didn't lock our cars, you know. And some little turd broke in and stole my iPod out of my car. And... uh of course I got him in trouble for that. I found out who it was. He was bragging about it to some kid in school who happened to know my little sister, and that's how small of a town it was, right? <laughs> the word got back to me who it was. I told the cops, and they went and they got him and found some of my stuff he had stolen from me. And it's like, you know, I'm sorry, but stealing other people's possessions is wrong. And so if I feel like you're violating my space and my stuff, you know, i.e. being in my backyard, opening my gate, messing with, like, what else are you doing? What are you doing? Like, why are you here? Especially in the home I live in now. If anyone's in my backyard, they have no reason to be there. There's no business you have being in my backyard now. So if I saw that, you bet your ass I'd be reporting it to cops. And actually, I have a camera system, and I did notice what looked like maybe somebody running through my backyard with a flashlight probably a year ago. And so I, I definitely reported that to the police. But what I later came to find out was, what had actually happened is there's a main, a somewhat main road. It's not super, it, it is, a, it turns into a really busy section of main road, but this road is, you know, it's a big connecting point from one town to the next town. And where I'm situated, it's somewhat rural and not as busy. But anyway, there were, somehow my camera was picking up, it picked up some motion and recorded. And at that same exact moment, whatever motion it picked up was unrelated to this, I found out later. 
but you could see what appeared to be a flashlight and someone running through this tree line behind my house. But what it actually is, is it was a car driving down and the trees, it was so dark, they would break up the beam of the light. So it made it look like it was jittery, like somebody was walking. But later on, I watched my camera a couple of nights later just to watch it around the same time that it had reported activity. So something had set it off, like some other motion, and it just happened to record that was going on at the same time in the background. So I thought what might be somebody running through my yard was actually a car driving on the street behind it. I know it's probably hard for some people to <laughs> kind of understand, but it's really tiny. So you can't really see the car. You know, it's all, way off in the distance. So, you know, just the size proportions make the headlights look like flashlights. You know what I mean? Like it just makes it look smaller than, you know, objects in the mirrors, <laughs> closer than they appear kind of a thing. If you're standing outside, you're like, duh. But when you're watching on the camera, it looks really tiny and you can't really tell. And it gives it that effect of an optical illusion with the silhouettes of the trees in the dark and the light passing by the trees. Yeah. I can see where you can make that mistake. Well, and and the cars are so far away that what it's, you know, it's actually like almost as if the car disappeared behind a house and came out on the other side of the house, you would see like the light would disappear and come back. Right. And so it's not like you have the light beams flashing off the trees per se. So it's not like you can get the perspective of where this person would be because the cars are so far away. It's really just like it's, there's so many trees. It's just breaking up the beam of light just enough where it looks like somebody's in your tree line when really they're really far away. Anyway, that was a really long winded explanation that is Basically irrelevant to what we're talking about. So let's move on to uh, attack number nine. November 10th, 1976, Greenleaf Drive, Citrus Heights. At 8.30 p.m., the parents of a 16-year-old girl returned to their home to find their daughter was not at the residence. This was normal for her and not quite yet her curfew, so they thought nothing of it. Her parents had been visiting her brother in the hospital that day. She was home alone doing homework and watching TV, but she was interrupted by a loud noise in the living room. Her poodle was sitting in her lap and began acting nervous, but that was relatively normal for her dog. From behind, a man jumped out at her and pointed a knife towards her. She screamed instantly. The man, as he was wont to do, growled through clenched teeth, shut up or I'll stab you. All I want is your money. The dog was barking profusely, so the intruder kicked the dog and told the girl, shut the dog up or I will stab it. All I want is your money. She told the intruder that there was no money, her parents had the money, and he replied, Damn, no money? Ah, oh, man, no money? After the girl had quieted her dog, her assailant tied her hands behind her back. As he proceeded to usher her out the door into the backyard, she noticed her bicycle, at the opposite end of the yard, had shoestrings neatly hanging from the handlebars. He used them to bind her ankles. The attacker then replaced the screen to the window he used to break in. He also went into the home to stage it, as if she had left on her own and no one had entered the home, turning the lights off, the heater on, the TV off and locking the doors. The only indication someone had entered the home was that there was a hole in the screen near the window lock. The attacker led the victim down the canalway that was used in the other attacks for the assailant to escape. Each time the girl started to speak or try to ask a question, the attacker responded, Shut up. If you're not quiet, you'll be silent forever, and I will be gone in the dark. The intruder marched the girl down the canalway until they reached a spot with an ancient willow tree. Fifty feet beyond the willow tree and above the ditch was a tree stump sticking out with some weeds. That's where he made the girl sit down. This is where the intruder blindfolded her. While she was blindfolded, it slipped down a little over her left eye and she caught a glimpse of her captor as he was kneeling down to pull up a sock. He was 18 to 23 years old, 5 foot 10, 165 pounds. He had brown hair with a pale complexion. He was described as wearing a military style jacket, soft and tan leather gloves, and military fatigues. His leg hair was brown and his eyes were dark. He was also wearing black square-toed shoes. The assailant worked to cut one leg from her Levi's. Then he tried to rip the other one off without any luck. During his spat with her pants, he whispered to himself, this isn't working, right? Finally, he got all her clothes off and she was sitting there nude. She noticed a foul odor coming from the man and thought it was possibly his breath. When he asked what her name was, she gave him a fake name. Then he asked if she was a student at the American River College. She replied, no. He then held a knife to her throat and accused her of lying. When she said she was a high school student, he stood up and paced back and forth for a moment. Interestingly, her neighbor was a student at American River College and bore a striking resemblance to her. At this point, he began whispering things to himself, something to the effect of waiting for his parents to leave so he could go home and about leaving his car. The victim doesn't know for sure, but also did not believe what he was saying. He escorted her back to the old willow tree and made her sit down. 
As he was leaving, he said to her, Within twenty minutes, make one move, and you'll be silent forever, and I'll be gone into the dark of the night. She waited a while before she was sure he was gone, and then she freed her bindings on her feet, but not her hands. She waited again for what she estimates was an hour just to be safe, and then returned home. After she appeared from the ditch, she spotted her neighbor and ran screaming to him. He cut her free and then called her parents, who were now home. The knife used in this attack presumably came from the victim's kitchen. This time, however, she was not raped, believing it was because she was menstruating. But this did not stop him before. So what was interesting here is, you know, he had lured her outside and took her far away from the home, which he doesn't ever do that. So that was kind of strange in this case. Um, And to me, it indicates that he probably thought that somebody would be home soon. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's definitely the case. And just from what we read through there, he was asking if she went to college at, you know, at, at that university. And she obviously didn't. So it sounds to me like he went to the wrong house and was caught off guard by, you know, what the way things unfolded when he broke into that house. Yeah. What was interesting, though, is if he went to the wrong house, man, did he get awfully lucky that nobody else was home? <laughs> like, uh, oops. That's what, to me, uh, almost doesn't make sense. I think he may have went to the right home and just confused the details of the girls living in the different homes. Like, I think he meant to hit that house, but then he confused himself with knowing the other girl went to American River College, but he really meant to strike the house he did strike, but then he got himself confused. And then I think he, I don't know if he psyched himself out and then and left or... Or if because he took the girl so far away from home, it wasn't like his usual routine of like, I'm going to ransack your home, I'm going to come back and forth, I'm going to terrorize you a bit. Like maybe that led him to not be able to continue on with his attack as usual. Yeah. And maybe that's why he didn't end up raping her and and she was able to escape and get back home without being, you know, raped or victimized in that way. I think that's the case. And that's an interesting point. Maybe he had both of these people on his list. And, and he just hit the he hit the wrong house on the wrong night and was thinking about the other one. He maybe he didn't plan on attacking this girl, but it wasn't supposed to happen that night. Yeah, I mean, and not only that, but you know, maybe he just like I said had the details confused. Like, okay, I was in this house next door, or know this house next door. I know this girl, and then I know the other house, you know, where where he strikes, and I know that girl. Um, and then he shows up there, and then he's like, ah, oh, crap, they look the same which girl is this? I don't remember. And it like ruined his whole fantasy that he had played out in his head. And then at that point he's like, all right, I'm out. Right. I, yeah. I don't think it had anything to do with uh, just other than the fact that it wasn't how he had planned it in his head to go down. And it's really weird that he was talking about stuff to himself and she could overhear him. Yeah. He does that a lot. You know, there's reports a lot of times of him kind of like talking to himself and some victims report that there's possibly, they think that it might be two people at the same time in the home, but later they pretty much determine it's just one person, you know, when they investigate. So he was, he was definitely shook and that's for sure during this attack. Not, not as, I, I don't want to say he's ever calm, cool and collected, but he wasn't, you know, wasn't on his game. Like we've, like we've read up to this point. So police had also identified a, a person of interest that they were uh, eyeing during these attacks. And his name was Art Pinkton. Art, I believe, lived with his mom. I'm going all a little bit off memory here, so I apologize if I misspeak on any of this. Um, I'm sure someone will correct us. But Art Pinkton uh, was living with his mother at the time, and Detective Shelby was basically very interested in him and felt like he was somebody who, I believe he actually had some prior rape convictions. And so people thought that this, and he was very similar in description of the man who you know people are describing when, these attacks occur. And so he, he's looking at this guy, they get a warrant to go talk to him. And so they go serve the warrant at his home. Um, but what was interesting is as the, as the process for the warrant was unfolding in real time, Shelby was out doing some, some police work, you know, he's driving around some of these neighborhoods and he noticed, you know, near this attack, there was a man who was walk. uh, sorry, I don't know if it was actually during this attack, but there was reported prowler activity in the area, and he was out patrolling, and they found a man who matched very similar to the description of this guy walking around. 
He had very upright, almost like military-esque posture. And as soon as he spotted Shelby spotting him, he disappeared. And so Shelby does, you know, some U-turns in his car, gets around, starts looking for the guy, and he's gone. He can't find him. And simultaneously, he's hearing on his radio that they got the warrant for Art Pinkton. And he thinks Pinkton's the man. Like, he's, like, pretty convinced that that's the dude. So he kind of gives up chase of this guy. And so years later, we find, obviously, like, shortly after this, we find out it's not Art Pinkton. But Shelby just questions himself, you know, to this very day. Could I have caught the East Area Rapist walking down the street right there? Was that the man? Because he disappeared. He matched the description. He walked in the same kind of posture. Like, was that the guy right then and there that could have been the East Area Rapist prowling the neighborhoods? And could he have caught him? And he even went on to say in his book, you know, when he thought, thinking back on it, he knows that if he would have encountered that guy, that he probably would have had to draw his weapon and that, you know, he at least had a fighting chance compared to some of these other people. <laughs> that was his own words. And so I thought that was pretty um, interesting in this case is that, you know, here's another time where there's a potentially close encounter where they could have caught the guy. But I mean, obviously, we don't know for sure. It could have just been some dude walking around the neighborhood. Who knows? But, uh, you know, he feels pretty strongly that that was his guy and that he missed him. Yeah, this goes back to the how lucky is this guy. I mean, to this point, there's been so many opportunities for him to be captured, and he's eluded capture. And maybe it wasn't him. Maybe the person walking down the sidewalk was just nervous that this this guy was casing him down the street and just took off. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Veered off and disappeared. It's hard to say. And I think he would have had more of a fighting chance than. Maybe he alluded to, because if he catches him off guard like that, just walking around the neighborhood, chances are, well, maybe he is carrying a weapon, but still. No, I'm sure he's carrying a weapon. (laughs) This dude always was armed. Right. But but you catch him off guard, and you you have the upper hand at that point, especially if you have to confront him. So. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think when he's prowling, he's probably more likely to be carrying a gun, because he's more likely to get caught by somebody he's not expecting, a dog, a person, something like that, where when he's going in for the attacks, he knows the house he's usually going to hit. He knows what he's going to do. And so he feels like no one's home. I can just threaten him with a knife and I can carry that easily on my belt and move on my way. So I think that there's a little bit of calculation and I'm guessing that he kind of rotates and carries his gun with him when he's out prowling because, you know, as evidence when he was the VR, you know, he shot at Detective McGowan you know, he would have shot at Shelby too. I'm convinced of it. If he thought he was getting captured, this guy was all about self-preservation. So he's definitely going to shoot. There's no question in my mind. He would have shot at him. Right. It was about this time that the term East area rapist came to be his official moniker. The origins are likely due to a journalist from the Sacramento Bee who had a decent enough relationship with detectives that he would sometimes have free run of the detective division of the police department. It is assumed that Warren Holloway had been wandering around and spotted a one-page bulletin that was put together by Richard Shelby, which stated there was a serial rapist loose on the east area of Sacramento, and so it began. There was now a media frenzy ongoing in the area, and a public forum was established. It would be at the Del Deo County Country Club, where Shelby and Daly would lead the meetings with the public and try to calm them and help them understand what steps were being taken in their investigation. There were two separate meetings with the public that were held at the Del Deo Country Club. On November 2nd and 3rd, 1976, during these town hall meetings, many people from the town attended to learn more from Daly and Shelby as to the details of what the rapist was doing. The media blackout had been lifted by the sheriff's department and the public was anxious and on edge. An article that ran in the Sacramento Bee on November 4th was as follows. Sheriff's detectives today disclosed an extensive hunt that has been underway for a man who has attacked and raped eight women in the past year in areas of East Sacramento. Inspector Richard Shelby today said the same man is believed to have raped four women in Rancho Cordova, two in Del Deo, and two in the Crestview area. He said the first case occurred in October of last year. He said the man did not strike again until June. Four of the attacks were last month. Shelby said the man is also believed to be responsible for a case in which a woman was molested and another which a rape attempt was thwarted. The Sheriff's Department has requested the rape cases be included in the B's secret witness program. A reward of $2,500 is offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the rapist. Informants need not identify themselves. They are asked to telephone the private secret witness number 
or to write using instructions published on Wednesdays. Sheriff's officials previously had asked the news media to hold back on reporting the case, saying publicity would ruin any stakeouts aimed at capturing the suspect. But the series of rapes came to light last night at Del Deo Parents Club meeting at the Del Deo School. The meeting conducted by deputies was to have been on crime prevention in general, but the series of rapes was disclosed after questions about the rumored rapes from some of the 500 persons attending. Shelby said the suspect is white, has a pale complexion, maybe between 5 foot 8 inches to 6 feet tall, of a medium build, 25 to 35 years old, and has dark hair which hangs over his ears to his collar. The attacks have been committed between 11 p.m. and 6.45 a.m. He frequently commits repeated attacks on individual victims over a period of three hours. He has entered the homes through a window. Investigators describe him as a cat burglar type who finds out if the husband is home. He has worn a mask, but the descriptions are vague as to what kind. He has worn military-type boots and black tennis shoes. His weapons have included a revolver, knife, a stick, and a club. He has cut and beat his victims, but none severely. According to Detective Shelby, a lot of the hysteria and panic surrounding the public at this time had to do with the fact that there was also another rapist that had been terrorizing the area, the early bird rapist. Although the last attack of the early bird rapist had been nine months ago, Local law enforcement did not do a good job of splitting his attacks from the current series being done by the East Area Rapists. Just to get a feel for how the media began covering this case, take a listen to this old news clip from KCRA. Sacramento's East Area Rapist has been active for 16 months. 15 victims. At first, a single investigator worked the case full-time. Now, several people are involved. The pressure to catch this man has been mounting but a multi-rapist often acts on impulse. Most of the multiple rapists attack on impulse, and so they have no predetermined point of attack. They have, there is no way to calculate a pattern of where they're going to strike next, or the type of place they're going to strike next, or who their next victim is going to be. Many of those involved with the case say the East Area Rapist lives within the area where he operates that he picks upon blocks of homes within neighborhoods, jumping from one to the other. One of his few mistakes was to attack a woman who lived only one block inside Sacramento's city limits and then steal her car, which only brought in the city's rape detail and four more people to work toward catching him. It takes a while for a community to wake up. Sacramento was no exception. By late fall, when the East Area rapist began claiming two and three victims a month, Citizens began buying everything they could think of to protect themselves. Gun sales are way up, with some of the buyers not that familiar with how to use firearms, and that can be dangerous. Local burglar alarm distributors report a run on alarm systems, with technicians backlogged for days in an effort to keep up with demand. And locksmiths. First there were inquiries, then outright orders to make metropolitan homes safer. According to the man who heads the investigation to catch Sacramento's East Area Rapist, better locks are the most sensible approach. There are two things unknown about the rapist currently terrorizing Sacramento. One is, he has never been caught in a home where there was a man present. The other is, he's never been in a home where there has been a big dog present. In only two cases have there been dogs in a home invaded by the East Area Rapist. One of them was a puppy, the other a poodle. In both cases, the rapist was very upset they were even on the premises. What else can you do? A recent rape victim had precious seconds to telephone for help. She dialed operator. Unfortunately, the operator did not come in on the line. Even when calling the local sheriff's office, when all circuits are tied up, the number still rings in an annex and cannot be heard or answered until a line clears. A better tip might be to call your next-door neighbor who can immediately be on his way to help while someone else in his household calls the law. Mike Boyd, KCRA News. I found fascinating at the end of that clip how the neighbor has to be a male and he's coming to help you. You leave your woman at home and she calls the cops. <laughs> like your, your neighbor can't be the neighbor woman next door who just comes over and helps you. It's got to be the man. It was, very right. fun. it was very funny, that narrative, you know, putting that through the 2019 lens. <laughs> it was just really, really funny to hear. But I thought that clip was really good because it, it really does give a good rundown of, you know, uh, uh, how the public was now perceiving the East Area Rapist. They were going and buying their guns, their locks, and all of that stuff. Not only that, it, it gave a good description of what scenarios 
he he was attacking under. You know, there was never a man home when he attacked, and there was never a big dog present. Only a couple instances where there were small dogs. Yep, exactly. And I thought that was really a really good take on the case to this point. And I just happened to stumble across that gem on YouTube. So just, you know, thanks to KCRA for that old news footage. It's very hard to track down old news footage. And, uh, you know, that was a really good clip of the, you know, the feelings of, you know, the Sacramento area during this time. During the town hall meeting, the public was getting anxious and frustrated by the law enforcement's inability to capture the ear. Near the end of the second night, a man stood up and laid into the sheriff's department for their inability to stop this man. He paced up and down the aisle. At one point, he said that in Italy, where he was from, this kind of thing would not be tolerated and would be dealt with quickly. Detective Shelby responded to the man, asking what he was worried about. He wasn't going to rape him. Make a mental note of this man, as he will come into play a bit later in the story of the ear. During the meeting, there was an officer assigned to patrol the parking lot and just wander around the outside of it, making sure that there wasn't any suspicious activity. They did pull over a light-colored VW bug as it was leaving the parking lot. It was a white male, 5'9", 170 pounds, in his late 20s. He was an employee of the California Department of Justice. Nothing ever came of the man, and Richard Shelby later on would state that he wanted to test his DNA um, much, much later, like in, I want to say, 2008, because he just still, that guy still kind of sat with him, but um, nothing ever came of that man. Attack number 10, December 18, 1976. Ladera Way, Carmichael, California. Make a move, or I'll kill you. Do you have any money in the house? The ear had approached a victim from behind in her home as she was playing her piano. Get moving. If you say anything or flinch, I'll push this knife all the way in, and I'll be gone in the dark of the night. The event unfolded similarly to the last attack, forcing her into the backyard, where he tied her to a picnic table and a post, and began ransacking the home. After ransacking, he asked a girl, have you ever fucked a guy? She said no. He went on with his usual things, placing his penis in her hands and instructing her to play with it. He stood her up, removed her pants, cut her bra, and tore her blouse off. After untying her, he moved her to her parents' room and raped her, bringing her back out into the family room, turned on the gas fireplace, and raped her twice. On the picnic table, a bloody band-aid was found. It was carefully collected and the blood stain was found to be group ABO type A positive. The girl did not have any injuries, so the band-aid was assumed to be the ears. This assault also did not see the telephone line cut. The victim in this case had been receiving hang-up phone calls for several weeks prior to meeting the ear. She described him as wearing a dark red mask and a dark jacket, regular build, about six foot tall. He spoke through clenched teeth in an angry whisper. Also found at the scene was a fence in the neighbor's yard that had been pushed over, and there was a clear shoe print, which contained a zigzag pattern which showed that he was wearing tennis shoes. In the neighbor's yard, the victim's clothes were found, and a white shoelace was dangling from the tree. So this one's very similar to the last attack, and he's been, um, you know, coming in on these younger girls by themselves with his knife, and, you know, what you would basically deem an easy target, if you will. You know, it's a single young girl in her home by herself. And, you know, I believe we started in was October. I'm sorry. We started in June and you know, it's now December. So, you know, a good solid 6 months of these attacks going on and we're at 10 attacks and he still hasn't been stopped. But the crucial piece of evidence that you called out there was the band-aid. They were actually able to collect that as evidence and get the blood type off of that. Not that it, it it's significant in the fact that they were able to collect it as evidence, but we know that, you know, DNA type testing at that time period was very difficult. Yeah, it was basically non-existent. I mean, it was essentially pointless. Um, you know, we didn't really start getting decent DNA testing until the 90s, where it was somewhat usable. So, uh, yeah, it, that's the big clue here. Um, and it's definitely, you know, something that investigators are hoping that they can use to determine who this man is and and how they can catch him. So the only other thing that I caught out of that last attack is why would he have thrown the shoelace in the tree? Or if he's just fleeing, he's just chucking shit over his shoulder and hitting the road. I feel like he was staging on purpose, just kind of taunting people, just put it in the tree, hang the shoelace in the tree. I don't know. I feel like it was just nothing more than just being a piece of garbage. <laughs> I mean, and just trying to torture this, this girl and, 
You know what I mean? Uh, that's that's my opinion. I don't know if it really is like that or has anything to do with it, but it seems like that to me, at least. Just a ruse. Yep, exactly. Well, that being said, uh, we're going to take a pause here this week for the case of the East Area Rapist, the Golden State Killer, and we will be back next week with part four in the series. And it just gets crazier from here. We'll see you next week. Stay safe.